the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. Jesus had been working many miracles all around the area. The blind got their sight back. The lame walked. The demon-possessed were set free. The sick were healed. And the dead were raised back to life. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 9, verse 30. In verse 27 of Luke, when he said that some of you will see the kingdom of God, he explained in verse 26 what that coming would be like. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his own glory. So Jesus is now shining forth his own glory. Now, when the disciples wake up, because they were sleeping while Jesus prayed, well, they wake up. And when they do, they get to see and look on something that no living person will see until Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom. Jesus in his full glory. This place in scripture, why it's so important, why all four gospels mention it, is because this is the place that we get the clearest glimpse of Jesus' dual nature as God and man in all of scripture. Clearest glimpse. Jesus did not leave his deity behind when he became a man. Not one ounce. He simply laid aside certain privileges that come with being God. He could take them up at any moment if he wanted to. And that's why when we see Jesus, he can say, you know, no man knows the day or the hour, only my father in heaven, because he laid that privilege aside to know the day of his return. But then there are other times we see Jesus and it says, and he knew it was in the heart of man, or he knew what they were thinking. Or it'll say, and Jesus answered when no one said anything because he knew what they were thinking in their heart. So Jesus, there were times he laid hold of that privilege and he used it. So he he never let it go. He just laid down certain privileges that came with being God. At any moment, he could take him up again. And that's why Jesus, he said, no man takes my life from me. He goes, I have power to lay it down and I have power to raise it up again. Like, I don't have that ability in myself. I pray the Lord returns before this tent wears out. But there will come a day, no matter how hard I fight, no matter how much my will is and courage is and to live, that if the Lord calls me home and he doesn't return, that I will give up the ghost. I don't have life in and of myself, but Jesus does. And so he, he, even being dead, he could make himself alive again because he's God. He never, ever ceased to be God. But the thing we have to also understand is Jesus wasn't a pseudo-man. He took on our likeness, our form, becoming exactly like us. There was nothing supernormal or supernatural about Jesus' organs. They would have eventually failed, just like ours do. There was nothing supernormal about his senses. It's not like Jesus had a spidey sense or something like that. There wasn't anything else that, anything else that makes us a human being that was physically different about Jesus. In this moment, we see him in all of his manhood. The glory of his deity is permitted to shine through his humanity. Now, why? Why why this and why now? Well, 
And so Jesus could talk about his death with someone who would understand. Look at verse 30. It says in verse 30, And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, it's funny because Luke is thinking, I know this is already mind-blowing, but check this out. That's what the word behold means. If that wasn't cool enough, as if Jesus' glory revealed isn't big enough, something else really cool happens. Moses and Elijah appear in glory, in their glory too, and they're talking to him. Why Moses and Elijah instead of any, uh, like Joseph or Daniel or Abraham or anybody else? Well, we're going to get our glory in heaven one of two ways, either through death or the rapture. Either when we die, we're going to get glory as we'll be raised from the dead in the rapture, or we'll be alive and we'll be changed as we are raptured up to be with the Lord. And at the rapture, the dead and the living will, in Christ, will finally be together, and the only division in the church will be eradicated. Like the only division that God sees in the church is that they call it the church triumphant and the church militant. We're still fighting the fight. They've already finished their race. But in that day, we'll all be reunited. All those saints who have gone home to be with the Lord will be reunited with us. And in that moment, we'll get our new bodies and we get our glory together, even though we get them differently. What's interesting about Moses and Elijah are they are examples of those who got their eternal glory through those two ways. Moses died, and he died a very unique death. Moses was, went up into the mountain and the Lord buried him, the Bible says. In fact, the Bible has an interesting out-of-nowhere verse in the book of, I want to say Jude, where it says that the devil, Satan, and Michael the archangel were arguing over Moses' body. Now, I'll give you my theory on why later. I, I don't know for sure. But they, they were doing that. So Moses had kind of a unique death. And then, of course, Elijah never died. Elijah was taken away in a chariot straight up into heaven. So we see these as represents the two examples of our glory. And you may be saying, okay, well, that explains Elijah, but Moses isn't different than other Old Testament saints who died. You're right. But Moses and Elijah also represent something very important to the Jewish people. Moses and Elijah are like saying the law and the prophets. They represent the entire testimony of Jewish scripture. And so they are unique in that designation. The Jews don't reference, you know, other prophets that way, only Moses and Elijah. And so they are ideal to represent not just all believers in heaven, but the testimony of all scripture. A couple of cool thoughts that go with this. This is the same reason that many believe Moses and Elijah will be the two witnesses of Revelation 11, to represent God's entire testimony. They'll testify of Messiah for three and a half years to the Jewish people. I think it's also interesting that might be why they were fighting over the body, because God's going to need it again. <laughs> you know, Moses is going to be back. And so that's what some people believe. That's my theory too. Don't go home and say, Pastor Will said you're going to hell if you don't believe Moses is the second witness. It's okay if you don't. It's not a matter of, of importance. But I do think that's my, that's my opinion, my theory. But the other cool thought, what was Moses' discipline for striking the rock? He didn't get to go in the promised land, right? Well, yeah, he did right here on this mountain. I told you I didn't know where it was, but I do know, I do know where area it was. It was in the promised land. And even though Moses failed, he gets to go into the land here. And I'll take this upgrade. Like going in with Joshua, that would have been great, but this, I think this is an upgrade. And doesn't that show how gracious our God is despite our failures? He is so gracious. 
Now, what are they talking about? It says they spoke of his decease, which he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. The word decease is, the, interestingly enough, the word exodus, and it means to depart from this life or death. It's the same word that Peter used to describe his death in 2 Peter 1.15, not as dying, but departing. Now, Moses knew a lot about an exodus, didn't he? He could talk about that, couldn't he? About leaving an old life behind and starting a new one. And so, unlike the disciples who were confused and bummed and didn't understand the cross and the resurrection and all that, Moses and Elijah knew the full plan of God, and they could encourage Jesus like no one on earth could for the task that he had in front of him. This is the place where we see both the humanity and the deity of Christ perfectly intertwined. Because here he is in his own glory shining through, and yet in need of strengthening for the mission in front of him, right? Fully human as well. 100% like us, and yet completely different than us. See, while Jesus was 100% God, he lived life 100% as a man needs to live it. When Satan came to him and said, man, since you're the son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread? You You don't need to be out here starving. And he said, yeah, I could do that as God, but I'm here to whoop you as man. I'm here to live as man's supposed to live. And so he said, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This is how man has to do it, and I'm going to do it where Adam failed. I'm going to secure the victory where Adam secured defeat. And so Jesus, he lived his life exactly as we would need to live it. He lived his life as a man in perfect submission to God with God's help, God's strength, and God's power, just like we need to. Now, that Jesus succeeded living life as a man should live it has great significance for us. First off, that means he can be and is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He has no blemish, no spot. So he can be the acceptable sacrifice for our sins. And then secondly, that means that he, since he perfectly overcame the temptation to sin, the very real temptation to sin, It means he understands my temptations and he can help me have victory over them too. That's what Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 16 says. We don't have a high priest that can't be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Jesus has experienced weakness. He's experienced anxiety. He's experienced loss. He's experienced pain. He's experienced friends departing and betraying him. He's experienced all those things. And yet he can look at you and go, I did it. I overcame. And if you let me live through you, by my mercy and by my grace, you can overcome too. The Bible says we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our weaknesses. He can sympathize in all points. He was tempted like we are, yet without sin. And so we can come to him for our t- in our time of need and find the help and the grace and the mercy that we need. Now, while this awesome conversation is taking place and Jesus is being encouraged, the disciples finally wake up. Look at verse 32. But Peter and they that were with him, they were heavy with sleep. That means they were out. They were completely out. And so when they were awake, when they woke up, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. Now, when we read that, I think, at least I do, how cool would that be? But put yourself in these guys' shoes. You've just woken up. Jesus is glowing like the sun, talking to two other people who are clearly not of this world. I have a child. This particular child would, would come into our bedroom at night, like kids normally do, and they wake up, have a bad dream, whatever, sleepwalk, you, know, you name it. But this one would come into the room, and they would hover over us like this, like full-on children of the corn style, you know? 
And when I would wake up, you would have to be careful but to not frighten them because you would see this thing looming over you and you'd go, ah, and no, it's okay, no, no, it's okay. Daddy's okay, you know, it's all right. What's going on? What do you need? It'd take you a minute to adjust because it was creepy looking. Can you imagine? You're, you're just barely waking up and you look over and like, oh, what is, what is that? And then, what is that? Who are those guys? You know, I mean, it's just totally something out of this world. I know for me, I would probably just go back to sleep and think I need to not eat what I ate last night again. But clearly, I mean, they realize something's going on. They rub their eyes. I don't know what they do. You know, they are, this is a quite frightening experience for them. Mark tells us that they were terrified. That doesn't surprise me because when John turned to see Jesus in his glory and revelation, you think, well, he knows Jesus, right? The Bible says he passed out. I mean, that's how powerful the experience was. You know, so it's, it's no shock they're kind of frozen in place at first. When one of them finally gets the brain working enough to, to actually act, uh, it's Peter, and that shouldn't surprise us, because Peter always is acting when he shouldn't. And Peter does what he normally does when he doesn't know what to do. He starts talking nonsense. Look at verse 33. And it came to pass as they departed, so the, the idea here is they're saying their goodbyes. Moses and Jesus and Elijah, they're saying their goodbyes, and, which kind of comforts me because it shows that heaven is normal. Like, it's obviously super normal, but it's not so abnormal that, like, I hear people say, well, I, don't, I don't know if I want to go to heaven. I mean, it sounds boring. And I understand if you, if you have the image of, like, you just kind of twiddling on a harp on a cloud somewhere, that probably does sound boring. But can I tell you that I can guarantee you that's not going to be heaven? Whatever views you may have of it, that's definitely not it. It's going to be way cool, and it'll be very normal. I mean, here Jesus, he's saying goodbye. I mean, it's, it sounds like normal conversation, doesn't it? So, I mean, I, I can't imagine that if that's Jesus talking to people, that it would feel, aside from the glowing, normal, that we would feel abnormal or not like it. So, as they're saying their goodbyes, Peter thinks, no, 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 we can't let this end. We need to do something. And so he says to Jesus, Master, hold on, nobody go anywhere. It's good for us to be here. Peter didn't think it was good. He was terrified. That's not how he's feeling at all. But then he comes up with an idea. He says, let us, we'll do the work. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Nobody needs to go anywhere. No goodbyes need to be said. We can just make camp right here. And then it explains not knowing what he said, not having a clue what he's talking about. Now, part of me admires Peter's courage to say something that's directly opposite of how he felt, which was terrified. But another part of me knows that Peter often spoke like this because he wanted to look better than the other disciples in important situations. And that pride-based courage is how one usually ends up in trouble. Many Jews, I don't know if they heard all of Jesus' conversation. I'm pretty sure they probably didn't. Many Jews in Jesus' day believed that Moses and Elijah would appear beside the Messiah either before the Messiah or with the Messiah, or they would at least be working together when he came to rule Israel. So it's more likely Peter's thinking, oh, this is great. This is so much better than the plan you told us about earlier, Jesus. No way he can die if Moses and Elijah are here. I mean, it's, it's wartime. So he's thinking, let's build some tents. The camp starts here, and then we can just start moving forward. Onward, Christian soldier. He's thinking we, we're going for it, Right? I don't know if that's what he's thinking. I also know this, that the Feast of Tabernacles was right around the corner. Now, Jesus, he had been avoiding Jerusalem because of the people's hostility toward him. And so it's also possible that Peter's suggesting, hey, how about we set up tents and celebrate Sukkoth, the Feast of Tabernacles, right here? 
We can bide time against the, all the anger and furor against you, Jesus. It dies down. And because surely having Moses and Elijah by, by our side will turn the tide of the people for you, Jesus. And then you don't have to die. Nobody will reject you. You don't have to go to the cross. So Peter, we don't know exactly why he said it, but both of those seem to make sense to me. I do think there's an important lesson here, though. When you don't know what to do, don't ignore the problem. That's not an answer. But don't do something just to do something. Seek the Lord. Spend time at his feet, lest you speak or act having no clue what you're doing like Peter did. Now, despite Peter's interruption to their goodbyes, the Lord continues doing what he was doing here. Look at verse 34. And while he, Peter, thus spake, so this is going to be an interruption, there came a cloud and overshadowed them. And they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. So while Peter's speaking, the Lord interrupts and dare I say ignores Peter. And this cloud overshadows him, the glory of God, the same glory that guided Israel in the wilderness. Now, if God decides to manifest his presence in a physical way, I would imagine what he's about to say is pretty important, don't you? And so there came a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Now, the father always refers to Jesus this way. This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Why? You know, I think sometimes we lighten the effect of the cross on God the Father because, well, he's God, right? I mean, nothing's hard for him. I mean, it's just all kind of, you do your thing, right? But I don't believe that this was an unemotional event for the Father. The Bible says he gave his dearly loved son, one who had never let him down, to suffer and die at the hands of the very people he was dying for while he watched and did nothing to stop it. By saying this, it's like Peter's going, you don't have to go to the cross. And the Lord's going, Peter, don't you know I don't need you to stop that? This is my beloved son. I love him way more than you do. I I could stop this like this. I don't have to let this happen. But there's no other way to redeem humanity. So I'm going to let it happen. So Peter, that idea needs to die. (laughs) That idea isn't from me. You need to listen to Jesus and stop listening to yourself. Now God... Here's establishing how important his son is to him. And that means you and I should never minimize the love that God has for us in giving his beloved son for us. That's how much he loves us. That he would allow him to go through this that we might be redeemed. Now, the phrase hear him means you must listen to and obey what he says. Very simple. Now, this is a very gentle rebuke to Peter's suggestion to not go to the cross. It's interesting because when God's presence came on the mountain, what did he tell Moses? He said, Moses, put, a, put some police tape around this mountain. I don't even want an, an animal coming and touching this mountain unless my fury break forth upon you. The idea was, is we're living in a sinful world. God is perfect in all he does. And for anything imperfect to be around his glory would require judgment. So this is a very gentle rebuke to the blemish of Peter's bad statement here that he would just say, Peter, close your mouth. Listen to him. Stop talking. A very gentle rebuke. Jesus' plan was to go to the cross, not stay here with Moses or Elijah. And so even though it was dangerous, Jesus did go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. You know what's interesting is on the last day of the feast, the priests, they would, this isn't from the Bible, but this is what they did in Jesus' day, and I think they still do it today. They would have this procession, this big formal procession, and the priests would carry these big jars full of water. 
And uh, at the end of the procession, they would take those jars and they would pour them out, symbolizing that God had brought Israel into the land. See, the Feast of Tabernacles was to celebrate both the fact that God took care of them in the wilderness, so they would all construct these lean-tos, these tents, and sleep out under the stars, because that's how their ancestors had to live when they were traveling from Egypt to the Promised Land. But at the end of the feast, the great day of the feast, the eighth day, they would celebrate that they weren't in those tents anymore, that God had brought them into the land. So it was both a reminder of what God had done there to provide for them in the wilderness, but then also a reminder that they weren't in the wilderness anymore. So it was to be a time of celebration, a time of thankfulness. It was a wonderful time for the Jews that they didn't have to live in tents anymore because now they had a home. But in Jesus' day, this procession, this end, where they dumped the water out, it left the Jews angry and empty and sad. Because even though they were in the land, it wasn't home. They might as well be in Egypt again because the Romans were ruling over them. And on that day, that last day, Jesus had kind of been incognito at the feast and they're wondering, is he going to show up? You know, and they had all these debates going on about him. And on the last day, it says he stood up and he cried out with a loud voice. Everybody knows it's him. And he said, listen, if any man thirst, let him come unto me. And out of his innermost being will gush rivers of living water. Wow. On that last day, he's seeing everybody sad and feeling empty. And he's saying to them, listen, <laughs> in your moment of anger and sadness, I can give you something that will satisfy more than getting rid of the Romans. I can make you a new person. I can give you a new life. One where you experience wholeness, no matter your circumstances, even under Rome's thumb. Now, sadly, instead of listening to Jesus, like God says here, people responded by debating who Jesus was in opposition to God's declaration here. He's my beloved son. Listen to him. After Jesus had died and he rose again, the disciples finally understood what happened on this mountain. See, they were getting a preview of the true gospel in contrast to the popular gospel in Jesus' day. They believe Messiah is just going to come in like a battering ram. You know, Messiah ben David, he's going to come in and just boom, you know, rule and reign. And they forgot all about Messiah ben Joseph, the suffering servant who would die for our sins. So they were getting a preview of the true gospel. And what is that gospel prophesied in the Old Testament? It's Isaiah 53, that God would come in the flesh, live a perfect life, and die as our perfect sacrifice for our sins. So what they were seeing was the kingdom of God, what it was all about before it even happened. The fulfillment of what Jesus said in verse 27. But they didn't understand that now. They didn't even talk about it till much later. Verse 36, and when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. The cloud was gone. And they kept it close and told no man. They said nothing about it. <laughs> and they told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. They still didn't get it until Jesus rose from the dead, but that's okay. Jesus got all the encouragement he needed up there. He came to serve others, not be served. And the truth is that service is gonna be needed in the morning when he goes back down into the valley and there's a lot of hurting people down there. You know, last week I talked about how Jesus taking the throne in Israel in his first coming, coming would have changed no one. No lives would have been changed even though the circumstances would have been changed. And the problem is that's what the idea that Peter's trying to preserve right here. You know, he's trying to preserve this idea where we just make tents and, and plan A is still a go, Jesus. You don't need to die. The cross isn't necessary. And see, that's exactly why Moses and Elijah showed up, to encourage Jesus in his mission of the cross. Because even though it might have felt great for Peter to stay up on that mountain forever with Jesus, Elijah, and Moses, the truth is just down in the valley below are demon-possessed people who need God's help. 
people who need a new life. And see, the problem is Peter didn't see he needed a new life. See, Peter might not be a demon-possessed person, but he makes the same mistakes so many people do today. Well, I'm not that bad off. I know I've got issues. I know I've got stuff, but nobody's perfect. I'm not that bad off. So God, just fix all the problems in the world and I'll be fine. But see, what Peter and all humanity need to learn is that we're all in need of a changed life, whether you're demon-possessed or not. We all need a savior because none of us are good on our own. And the problem is I need to quit listening to myself and start listening to the one that God spoke about from the cloud, his son. So I ask you this morning as we close, are you listening to Jesus? Oh Lord, this was a very holy moment in your word and I thank you for the glimpse we get of of your nature really more clearly probably than anywhere else in scripture with the exception of maybe Revelation. But we see that dual nature of you being fully God and fully man. And yet, the idea that you needed to go to the cross. Lord, that we're not good people. That we can't do this on our own. That we'll never get it right on our own. (laughs) So Lord, we thank you for going to the cross for us. And we give our lives to you in such a way that we say, Lord, we know that we can't do it. So we don't want to try in our own strength to do it. We give our lives to you anew and afresh. Lord, to allow you to live through us. Lord, before you departed, you said, I need to get out of this body so I can get into your, all of your bodies. So I'm limited in one body right now. But if I go away, I can send another comforter, my spirit, the spirit of God. And he'll live inside of you. He'll guide you into all truth. He'll, and he'll empower you to live on life on a different level. It'll be Christ in us, the hope of glory. Lord, that's what we need more than anything else. That's what's gonna affect real change in how we live. And so, Lord, we surrender to you. We stop trying to do it in our own strength. In Jesus' name. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com